Hello and welcome to the Spine and Nerve Podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Hovest. And my name is Dr. Nicholas Carvelis. And we are going to dive into more facetogenic pain today. And so once again, thank you everybody for listening and watching and for all of your feedback. Uh, we really do appreciate your attention and hope that you're finding value, especially as we come back to this Back to Basics series where we're addressing some of the bread and butter topics of physiatry and pain medicine. Uh, so today we're going to cover a recent article that looked at uh, interventions for uh, the facet joint pain um, and specifically predictors uh, that might in, uh, affect how patients do with these procedures. Um, so Dr. K, you want to give us a little bit more introduction? Yes. And before we get into the article, I just wanted to do a real concise review of uh, a spondylosis with uh, facetogenic pain being the primary pain generator. Um, before we jump into the article itself, um, I know we covered this last week, but just like I said, as a quick, uh, concise review here of uh, spondylosis with the primary pain generator of lumbar facetogenic pain. So as we know, this is defined as a painful disease, disease process originating from uh, either the capsule, the fibrous capsule itself, and or the synovial membrane, and or the hyaline cartilage surfaces, and or the bony articulations of the facet joint itself. Uh, it is a common uh, disease process with uh, most studies documenting around 15% of chronic low back pain being predominantly due to lumbar facetogenic pain. Uh, and um, although uh, facetogenic pain can arise from acute injury. The majority of lumbar facetogenic pain is due to chronic repetitive strain and low-grade low trauma uh, that leads to consequences, uh, including distension or stretching of that fibrous uh, capsule of the joint, as well as persistent accumulation of inflammatory chemicals, including substance P, which uh, is associated uh, ultimately with uh, peripheral and central, central sensitization. And typically lumbar facetogenic pain presents as axial low back pain. And there are certain referral patterns uh, specifically for the lower facet joints, which are the ones that typically are the most affected. Um, that referred pain can radiate to the uh, posterior and or lateral uh, thigh. And uh, on history and exam, uh, patients are going to report low back pain that typically is not solely midline, but lateralizes out to the side, and they will have uh, tenderness to palpation over the facet joints themselves. So just wanted to do that uh, quick, concise review before we jump into our first article, which uh, is titled uh, Predictors of Response to Medial Branch Block with uh, Steroid, uh, Radiofrequency Ablation, or facet joint injections uh, published in pain management uh, this year in 2021. So the whole purpose of this article was to determine an association between certain patient characteristics and patient's response to uh, lumbar facet joint uh, procedures. Um, and, you know, looking at that purpose, we, we were attracted to the article in the sense that, you know, uh, for any procedure or surgical intervention, any treatment, it's it's good to have that uh, those considerations in terms of uh, patient selection, and not 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 even in this case, I think as much patient selection as it is uh, the uh, uh, the power of that knowledge and being able to have that education for the patient heading into the procedure itself. Um, 
So in terms of the methods of this study, this was a, a single center retrospective observational study. It evaluated 100 patients between 2019 and 2020 at an outpatient academic uh, pain center. Uh, these were patients with axial low back pain determined to be predominantly facetogenic pain based on their history and exam, including uh, what we had brought up in terms of predominantly axial low back pain, lateralizing out to the side, tenderness to the patient over the facet joints, as well as some uh, pain on provocative uh, uh, facet loading maneuvers. So the patient characteristics that were evaluated in this study included age, gender, BMI, uh, history of prior back surgery, chronicity of pain. Uh, specifically, they were looking at pain either greater to or less than uh, five years of duration, medication usage, and then whether or not the patients had physical therapy prior to the procedure. Um, the patients were evaluated at three months uh, post-procedure. Uh, that was the uh, time of outcome measure. And um, what they defined as non-responders versus responders. Uh, non-responders in the specific study were defined as patients with uh, less than two point change in their VAS score on a scale of uh, one to 10, um, uh, zero to 10. So the, uh, ultimately the procedures that were performed in these 100 patients, uh, the breakdown was 21 of these patients interestingly received a medial branch block with steroid. Um, 55 received a radiofrequency uh, ablation, and 24 patients received intraarticular facet injection with steroid. So uh, the results will be fairly concise here because there was really two primary findings. Um, ultimately, uh, 40 patients were classified as non-responders. So 60, 60 patients had a good response, whereas uh, 40 uh, did not. Uh, even meet that criteria of uh, uh, of greater than uh, two, um, uh, greater than or equal to two point improvement on the VAS score, uh, VAS scale. Um, so the primary findings were that the positive responders were more likely to have a BMI lower than 30 uh, relative to non-responders. So specifically, uh, around 57% of um, uh, uh, responders had that lower BMI, whereas the, uh, in the non-responders group, only 35% of patients had that um, lower BMI. So um, uh, the other major finding, I'm gonna come back to the, the weight uh, in, in terms of obesity, and I'm gonna come back to that in a moment just to drive home some points. But the other uh, major finding of this study was that positive responders were more likely to have low back pain for less than five years relative to non-responders. So. Uh, specifically, 71.7% um, of patients who had a good response had that lower, uh, a shorter, shorter duration of um, a chronic low back pain versus uh, only 45% of the non-responders had that shorter duration of chronic low back pain. So obviously, with all those percentages and numbers there, the take-home points being that BMI, uh, so having a, a larger um, a BMI, uh, as well as having pain for a longer duration of time uh, were um, poor predictors um, of, uh, uh, or were predictors of not having the best outcome with these interventional procedures. Yeah, I think we'll, we'll just kind of start there on the, what they actually had as the outcomes, and then we'll uh, do this kind of residency style and kind of uh, have our takes on this, uh, this study itself. Uh, but I think the results or the actual output of the study makes sense, right? I mean, I think these are things that we see on a regular basis that patients that are heavier uh, tend to not respond as well. And patients who 
have had pain for a longer period of time tend to not respond as well to these interventions. Um, and, you know, and I think, you know, for the length of time, we can reference back to the chronification of pain uh, topics. And we've kind of, I think, uh, addressed that a lot recently in terms of if a patient has had this, and I don't know why they chose five years, but they chose five years. Um, if a patient has had pain for uh, you know more than five years uh, for this study, uh, they did significantly worse uh, than patients who had pain for a shorter period of time. I think that makes sense when we think about all of those pathways that we have discussed in the past. And you know, and then obviously the the weight issue has you know a lot to do, right? We have a lot of documentation that's been shown. You know, I think more the studies have been a little bit more clear when we talk about, you know, pressure across joints like the knee, um, but we can extrapolate that and use that for joints in the spine as well, uh, saying that, you know, the more weight that you have, the more pressure that gets put on and it's, you know, uh, uh, an exponential increase in the pressure across those joints. So it does make sense that it's, they're going to respond a little bit less. Um, maybe even I, I, the authors had brought this up, the possibility that these patients might not have as precise of a procedure because of body habitus, um, and which, you know, obviously plays a role as well. Um, but one of the things that I think I wanted to kind of talk about with this study, and, and I think Dr. Carvelis and I had brought up when we were discussing it after we'd read it, right? Obviously, the, the title was very interesting to us, and, may, and, and it's recent and, re and relevant to how we're addressing patients. But I don't know that um, the way that this study was done necessarily would have been how I would have ideally liked it to be. Um, I think that, you know, they had patients that, you know, they're following up in three months, they had patients treated with medial branch blocks with steroid, um, which, you know, I know that obviously is done and some patients respond really well to. Um, but I think if we're looking at that time frame, the three month mark, uh, if we would have had patients that were are treated with radiofrequency ablation, you know, and therefore had met the criterion for treatment with radiofrequency ablation with two medial branch blocks with greater than 80% relief, that we would have got more interesting data um, from my perspective. Um, I don't know, I'll leave it there. Thoughts? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think the, like, as we said in the beginning, I think the intent of the study, uh, you know, was great in terms of continuing to give us data in regards to uh, you know, how to best educate and select patients for these uh, different procedures. Um, so, you know, it adds to that data pool, but, but yeah, I agree. I think um, the, yeah, the, the, the duration, you know, exactly when they did the outcome measure and then also having the mixed bag of interventions, which we know, you know, especially uh, the medial branch block with steroid, is that going to give us three months of benefit? Uh, you know, I think the data is a little, uh, conflicting there. And, and so, yeah, I think the mixed bag and the, the uh, exact uh, timing of the outcome um, measure was um, uh, potentially, you know, compromised the results a little bit. But um, I, yeah, so as I, as I mentioned, I wanted to dive into the obesity just a little bit. But before I even do that, I just wanted to mention a couple of things. So in this, I, there was a lot of outcome measures they looked at. So we brought up BMI and, and, um, uh, 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 BMI and the uh, duration of pain as the biggest uh, outcomes that we saw definitive changes in. But there was also history of back surgery, as well as having physical therapy before the uh, treatment. And both of those trended 
you know, not quite as significant results, but they trended towards being, um, uh, you know, having an impact uh, on these patients. So obviously having a history of back surgery um, was a negative, uh, had a negative impact on whether or not patients responded to these procedures. Whereas having physical therapy before the treatment um, had a positive effect on whether or not they had a, a good response. Yeah. And just as a side note on that, they were both fairly close, you know, we said trending in the direction, right? They were fairly close to actually meeting clinical uh, relevance. Um, so in, in a, in a appropriately powered study, I think both of those probably would have also shown to be, uh, appropriately predictive. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, um, I'm going to talk about the obesity and then I, I think Dr. Hovez and I will do our final takeaways from, you know, the implications of this clinically for us and, and, uh, for, for patients who have, have facetogenic pain. So, you know, quickly to, emphasize the, uh, uh, the obesity finding. Um, uh, and this, you know, adds to our impact when we're educating patients on weight optimization. And I really try uh, to utilize that term uh, weight optimization. I stay away from the term uh, obesity. And, and, um, and I, I think, I don't know, I, I just think that has resonates a little bit better with the patients. Um, and, and, you know, so when you're saying, hey, if we optimize weight, if we have weight optimization, that's going to put less stress across the joint versus just saying, Hey, if you lose weight, or if, you know, if we improve the obesity, um, uh, that, you know, may have a different impact on the patient. So I really try to use that weight optimization, uh, term and, uh, uh, and with the weight optimization, like Dr. Hove has brought up, you know, it makes sense that, um, uh, obesity would worsen chronic low back pain because, you know, increased weight would increase stress on the facet joints. Um, but there's growing research as well, demonstrating that the impact of obesity goes beyond just the mechanical loading effect. Uh, so there's mounting evidence that uh, obesity increases systemic inflammation in and of itself and uh, can be linked to worsening chronic pain. So as an example, there was a study published in the journal of Spine in 2018. It was a, a retrospective review of 76 patients that found that even after uh, adjusted analysis, there was a significant relationship between physical inactivity and obesity uh, with uh, markers of systemic inflammation. Specifically, in this study, they looked at uh, ESR and CRP. And uh, the increase in these markers uh, of inflammation was correlated with chronic low back pain. So essentially, you know, the take-home point being that if we can optimize weight, this can result in decreased uh, systemic inflammation, including these levels of uh, cytokines and inflammatory mediators, which should result in an improvement in uh, overall pain. So in addition to that mechanical uh, load on the, the joints, we have this systemic inflammation as well. Um, so just uh, as a final, final thoughts in terms of this study uh, uh, with the uh, BMI and the chronicity of pain, and I, I, uh, Dr. Hovis, I uh, like your opinion here if, if it differs from mine, but I wouldn't say that if you have a, a patient who has a BMI greater than 30 and who's had pain for longer than five years that we shouldn't be doing facet procedures on. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have that be the conclusion of this study, but what I would, uh, you know, this study and other studies that are going to uh, continue to be done in terms of uh, predicting outcomes for these procedures, we take that into consideration when we're counseling the patient and when we're thinking about the next steps after our specific procedures. So for example, 
if we have a patient, you know, who does have a really high BMI, you know, uh, you know, upper thirties, um, and maybe they've had pain for, you know, over five years, um, and we do a medial branch block on them, uh, and they don't have, you know, a, a great response or, and, or they do okay with medial branch blocks and we do a radio frequency ablation. They don't have a great response in contrast to maybe, you know, a, a individual who's really fit and uh, has pretty clear facetogenic pain, at least we thought so on uh, exam and, and maybe their pain's only been going on for a year or two. Uh, and like I said, they're relatively fit. If we do facet procedures on them and they don't respond, then I'm really taking a step back and saying, okay, well, maybe we're missing something here. Let's, you know, reevaluate, reexamine, uh, think about other uh, causes versus with uh, the scenario I brought up in terms of someone who's had pain for a long time and uh, potentially a higher BMI, just keeping that in the back of our mind that maybe their lack of response wasn't so much due to the fact that we don't have the right, right diagnosis here, but more so that we need to optimize these other things. And that's where we can educate. And of course, we keep our mind open to other diagnoses, but, you know, we educate the patient that look, you know, if we can improve these other things and uh, the, then potentially we can have better responses with our procedures, uh, you know, going, by, going back to the weight optimization and educating the patient on the change of the mechanical loads, the change of the systemic uh, uh, um, inflammation. But also the other thing is that if we have these patients who've had pain for longer than five years um, or, you know, long duration of their facet giant pain, and we don't quite have that response we're looking for on the facet procedures, those are those patients that, as we've talked about in, in other uh, discussions, maybe those are the patients we really start to think about neuromodulation, maybe in the form of peripheral nerve stimulation, because we understand that we, our, our, uh, our suboptimal response may be because of that central peripheral sensitization. And so we need a therapy that's going to have more of a direct effect on that. Yeah. And I think it's really hard to discuss weight optimization for patients with back pain. Um, you know, I think all of us who treat patients with back pain have seen patients tried to have these conversations, tried to educate them appropriately. And, you know, the answer from the patient is always, well, if I could just get my pain better, I can move more and that would make things better for me. Um, which, you know, we've covered before and I know we've talked about and it's not, it's not exactly the response that we believe is true. Obviously we want patients to, to move, to do the physical therapy, to do the exercises and that that will lead to improvements in their pain. And, you know, and, and then there's the side note of is that movement component really the most important thing for weight loss. Um, but I think we're not as kind of strong with those decisions as say, orthopedic surgeons or spine surgeons, right? I mean, I, I know the, in the orthopedic literature, you know, it is very well documented for knee replacements that if patients are over a certain BMI that they do significantly worse with knee replacements uh, or any joint replacement. Um, and very, and many surgeons are stick to that, right? Where they're like, nope, if your BMI is 40, not replacing your knee, you got to lose weight before you do that. Um, or, you know, or spine surgeons that, you know, will tell patients that they're not going to do a procedure on them until they get their weight down. And obviously our procedures are different than uh, those interventions. They're, you know, they're much less invasive. They're, you know, our, our goal is to use our procedures to help the patients along so they can do those types of things. Um, but maybe this is, you know, spurring another conversation that we need to have on the idea of weight optimization. Um, you know, I side note, my, my wife has been on a, uh, 
a biohacking journey uh, recently. Um, and she's been listening to a, a ton of podcasts about weight optimization um, and you know different uh, dietary interventions. Um, my personal background uh, is in nutrition. I my master's thesis was written in nutrition, and so I mean I think that there is a lot to this, um, and it's not always as easy as you know counseling a patient or sending or talking to them about. Uh, you know, this or that to be able to optimize their weight. I mean, I think especially in the setting of we're talking about, you brought up chronic inflammation and chronic pain. And then we have this weight optimization uh, thing that we need to work on because obviously we know that patients are going to do better if they're in a better physical place. Um, anyways, that was a long side note uh, about, about it, but I think it's, I think it's a, it's a much harder conversation to have um, with patients than just saying, you know, okay, well, you need to lose weight. I mean, I think we'd all like to lose weight a, a little bit, maybe not you, you'd like to gain weight. Um, but most of us would like to, to lose a little bit of weight and it's not always that simple for patients. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, that, you know, that weight optimization, that lifestyle, uh, you know, optimization, that's definitely a journey. And, you know, that's where we as health healthcare providers come in to help the patients navigate that. Cause that's not a one visit, uh, deal. That's a, you know, multiple years, um, approach that we're trying to, you know, create and optimize, uh, sp uh approaches to it, but it's, it's life change. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, article two. <laughs> so, so uh, uh, real quickly to wrap up here, uh, you know, we always emphasize um, how important diagnosis is. We could do a procedure or, or whatever treatment perfectly, uh, but if we don't have the right diagnosis, it's not going to matter. And so anytime we're talking about facetogenic pain, it's uh, important to bring up, uh, you know, kind of landmark articles in terms of uh, diagnosis. And so obviously, as we've brought up, you know, unfortunately, there's no specific history or physical exam maneuver that's really pathognomonic for lumbar facetogenic pain. Um, uh, so we do rely on our image guided uh, diagnostic procedures. And um, in the past, there was, you know, uh, there was a question of what was better in terms of pr uh, predicting um, uh, both optimizing our diagnosis of facetogenic disease, as well as response to uh, radiofrequency ablation. And the question was medial branch block versus intraarticular injection. And so one of the big studies looking at this was a study by Dr. Cohen and colleagues published in 2015. It was titled medial branch block or intraarticular injection as a prognostic tool before lumbar facet radiofrequency denervation and multi-center case control study. The purpose was simply to compare the diagnostic value of medial branch block versus intraarticular injection prior to radiofrequency ablation. It was a case control study at four different institutions evaluating patients treated with radiofrequency uh, denervation that resulted in uh, greater than or equal to 50% improvement in pain. And ultimately they had 212 patients who received medial branch block and 212 patients who received intraarticular injections prior to radiofrequency ablation. And what they found was that uh, in the patients who underwent medial branch block, 70% of those patients had greater than or equal to 50% improvement in symptoms with radiofrequency ablation in contrast to about 60% of patients who underwent intraarticular injection experienced greater than, greater than or equal to 50% improvement. So not drastic uh, difference there, but it was statistically significant. And after they did a multivariable analysis, uh, they found that performing medial branch block was associated with radiofrequency denervation treatment success with an odds ratio of 1.57. 
Yeah. And thanks for bringing up that article because it is one of the important articles to think about. And I mean, it has guided um, the Medicare national coverage determinations, you know, for proceeding with radiofrequency ablation. Um, previously, you could use intraarticular facet injections. Uh, it is no longer one of the things that is considered uh, diagnostic to move forward with radiofrequency ablation. And so uh, this was one of the articles that uh, was, I think, a, a big part of that change happening. Um, but I think most importantly, one of the things that you brought up uh, is that, and I, I wanted to bring it up earlier in the, in the study or in the first study when we first brought it, but I think it's, it's good to end with um, because as we're thinking about lumbar facet mediated pain, uh, really understanding and knowing that, you know, the history, the physical, um, there's nothing that is pathognomonic for facet joint pain, right? Um, these diagnostic blocks that we do are the best thing that we have to be able to truly identify that the facet joint is what's helping or what's causing the pain for the patient. Um, and that's where our attention should be directed when we're trying to make uh, interventions for the patient, right? Um, there, you know, everything, you know, obviously we take a history, it sounds like this, you know, we can do a physical exam, you know, sometimes you get, we talked about last time, sometimes you can get pain with, you know, palpation or uh, with facet loading, sometimes you don't. Um, none of those have shown in studies to be you know, pathognomonic for the disease process. The only thing that's really been shown to be truly diagnostic for uh, identifying facet joint pain is utilizing diagnostic interventions uh, to help with that. Yep. All right. Well, I think uh, that's all I've got. You got any closing remarks as uh, we finish up our, uh, our, our podcast today? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's it. Thank you guys. All right, guys, uh, thanks for listening and stay tuned for those legal disclaimers. We will see you guys next time. Now for that legal disclaimer, this podcast is for information and educational purposes only. It is not meant to be medical advice. If anything discussed may pertain to you, please seek counsel with your healthcare provider. The views expressed are those of the individuals expressing them. They may not represent the views of Spine and Nerve Diagnostic Center.